Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Redemption. It is great to see you guys, especially all the moms. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much Um, for all the moms. I want to say how appreciative I am for the mothers, because without you, none of us would literally be here. So thank you for all that you do. How many of you, you're excited for an amazing, an amazing sermon today? You're you're ready. You're looking forward to, you're you're saying, this is going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to an amazing sermon. Okay, let me go ahead and lower your expectations, okay, because it's probably not going to be what you expect, but I would submit to you that this is going to be one of the more helpful and um, more important subjects that we tackle in the Gospel of Mark, and it's going to be very helpful for those of you who are new Christians, it's also going to be very beneficial for those of you who are more mature Christians. And so today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 21, and I'm going to give you the sermon title up front so you can know exactly what to expect. And here it is, Jesus and demons. Okay, I told you it's not going to be what you expect, but, but this is very important for us to be able to understand that in this life we will encounter there is, there are Satan and there are demons. And so here's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about Jesus, Satan, demons, sin, temptation, and the authority of Jesus. And some of you may be wondering, why would we pick this? Okay, the answer is we didn't. Okay, God did. God saw this to be profitable to put in his word, so that means that must be beneficial for for you and I. If you're new here at Redemption, one of the favorite ways that we like to study and teach here at the church is to pick a book of the Bible, and then we go verse by verse, line by line, from the very beginning all the way to the very end of the book, so we can pull everything out of it that we need to live our lives. And right now we find ourselves in the study of the Gospel of Mark, we're calling it the Simple Gospel, where we're taking the better part of two years, and we're just walking through this book, taking a look at who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And one of the important things that you're going to need to know about following Jesus is that there will be these encounters that you will struggle, you will strain, you will experience Satan and demons. They are very real. They are very active. They are in our world. And so we want to be able to use this teaching to walk through it briefly, use it as a springboard, an introduction, and an overview of who your enemy is. Because the bottom line is this, you have an enemy, but more importantly, Jesus has given you authority. So if you got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. How many of you are ready? Okay, good. Good. Three of you are. The rest of you, you'll catch up along the way. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath they entered into a synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his, being Jesus' teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. That's a very important word. We're going to see this word all throughout this section of Scripture, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribe. So last week we saw that Jesus comes and he enters in the scene and then he begins to call his very first disciples. That he comes into a region known as Galilee and he calls out to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, his first followers, his first disciples, and tells them, hey, come follow me. But what you'll notice is that Jesus doesn't tell them where he's going. He doesn't tell them what he's going to do. He doesn't tell him, you know, he doesn't tell him like, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. He just simply says to follow me. And they don't know where they're going, but they do know who they're going with. 
And that's what matters the most. Amen. And so Jesus calls his first disciples. He says, follow me. So when it says here that they, that's who it's talking about. It's the first followers along with Jesus. They went into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a region in the area of Galilee. It's a very important region. It becomes the home base, the hub for all of Jesus's ministry. So it's this little city in the area of Galilee. And then on the Sabbath, it says they entered into the synagogue. The synagogue was the old covenant equivalent for the church. And they would come, they would gather, they would worship, they would pray, they would study God's word, God's people would gather together, and they would worship on what is the Sabbath. Now, their Sabbath was on a Saturday. Our Sabbath today, we would call it the Lord's Day. It's a Sunday because that's the day of the Lord Jesus, his resurrection. But for those in the synagogue, first century Jews, they would worship on the Sabbath. So it says that Jesus, along with his disciples, they came into Capernaum. They went into the synagogue on their Sabbath and Jesus was invited to teach because Jesus is a teacher. There's this myth that's gotten out today that Jesus, he wasn't a teacher, that he just kind of wandered around and said a couple of Zen-like pithy things and everybody loved him. That's not true. Jesus, it says that he was a teacher, that he was actually a rabbi. He had a very popular reputation as one as a teacher. So when he comes into this area of Capernaum and Galilee, well, everybody there in the synagogue knows like, hey, here's this teacher. Let's go ahead and invite him in. And he's going to come in and teach. And I want you to notice this about Jesus's teachings. Jesus comes in, he preaches, and it says people were astonished. That's because Jesus was not he was not a boring Bible teacher. Okay, that's one of the worst sins in the world to bore people with the Bible. Okay, if you can bore people with the Bible, you're doing it wrong. Right? This word is life. It needs to be preached as if it's alive. This word is living. It is to be preached as if it is living. This word is alive. It's to be preached like it's alive, that there should be passion. There should be purpose. There should be presence that when you preach, Jesus comes, he preaches, and Jesus teaches with authority. And the people are amazed because Jesus, he doesn't teach like the scribes do. Now the scribes, on the other hand, they were boring, right? I mean, it was like a total snooze fest when the scribes would get up and they would go and teach because the scribes, they were they were very boring. And I don't have enough time to get into all of the different religious leaders and the aspects between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth. But for today, all you need to know about the scribes is that they were like the seminary professors of the day. I mean, they had more degrees than Fahrenheit. They were, you know, educated beyond their intelligence. And when they would get up, nobody had any clue what they were actually talking about because the scribes, when they would teach, you know, they didn't have the ability and they didn't have the authority to actually be able to interpret the scriptures for themselves. So they would just offer commentary and tell you what someone who died 300 years ago had to say about this, but they didn't have actually anything to say about it for themselves. So a scribe would get up and they'd say, okay, you know, pull out your scroll. We're going to turn to Leviticus 21. And, you know, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and then Rabbi so-and-so said that. Someone said something a long time ago. There was a book. Somebody wrote it. I don't know who it was. There were some notes. There were some footnotes. There's a map in the back. There's an appendix. One time someone said this. It could mean all of those things. It could mean anything or none of those things. Who knows? The end. Like, that's, that's the way in which a scribe taught. And then, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus is like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, this is exactly what it means. And Jesus teaches with authority. 
that there's no rabbinic interpretations. There's no, um, there, there's no traditions. There's, there's no religious superstitions. When Jesus comes in and teaches, Jesus comes in and he just tells it exactly the way that it is because Jesus teaches with authority. And people are amazed. But not everybody is actually eh, really excited with Jesus because the story continues. So Jesus comes in and teaches, and then verse 23, and immediately in the synagogue there was a man with an unclean spirit. And so you think, wait, okay, um, that's a demon. Unclean spirit, that's a demon. And you think, really, there's a demon in the church? Oh, yeah. Right? Don't think for just a second that because someone is in church that there's not something else working behind the scenes. Sometimes the best place for a demon to hide is right there in the middle of the pews amongst God's people because as long as this word is opened and there is no authority, that it's totally uninspired when it's preached, people aren't worshiping and filled with the Holy Spirit, you can bet that one of the safest places for a demon to hide is actually within a dying, within a, within a church that has no truth, has no scripture, has no direction, and they are dying. That's one, of the, that's one of the best places for a demon to hide. So Jesus comes in, he teaches, oh no, there's a demon at the presence, and he cried out, verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But he, Jesus, rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were questioning among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching and with, what's the word? Authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, inevitably, when we come across sections of Scripture like this, some of you, you're going to balk. You're going to say, really, seriously, honestly, you mean to tell me that you believe in Satan and demons? No way. Like, that stuff happened 2,000 years ago that they are very primitive people, we're highly evolved, that we have reasoning and we have rationale, that they didn't have you know, medication and psychology and they didn't have all the things in which we have and so they had to use all these supernatural reasonings to be able to explain different things. But obviously that's not really what happened because, well, we're evolved and they're primitive. If you come from that sort of thinking, then you're influenced by a, by a materialist worldview, Marxist philosophy, and a post-enlightenment reality. That, that, that's your worldview, and, and so you reject the supernatural and things like Satan and demons. Now, on the other hand, some of you, you get way too excited when we talk about this. That you're like, yes, Satan, demons, my favorite subject. And you get way too excited. And we all know somebody who gives, who gives demons way too much credit, right? They, they give credit for everything. Anything that bad happens in their life, oh no, it was a demon, right? If the coffee's hot, it's the coffee demon. If you get a flat tire on the side, so you're laughing because you know them, right? You get a flat tire on the side of the road, you're like, oh no, it's the flat tire demon. If you get a flat tire while you're drinking coffee, it's, it's the flat tire coffee demon. Oh no, you are under attack. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, right? Both are dangerous. Okay, to reject them and then to give them too much credit, that is both dangerous. C.S. Lewis, the author of uh, Screwtape Letters, he writes this very helpful book, short book, and this is what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. 
One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and have an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And they held a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, today, I don't want you to be a materialist. But I also don't want you to be a magician. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be afraid. But I do want you to be aware that Satan and demons are very real, that they are at work, they are powerful, that they do influence and infect and affect each one of us at different aspects of our lives. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be afraid, but I do want you to be aware that you have an enemy. And so I want to use this as an opportunity to teach you a couple of things about this enemy. Okay, the first thing that you need to know about your enemy is that he is not equal to God. Satan and demons are not equal to God. That there is a lie, there is a myth out in the world today that there are two equal and opposite forces just duking it out in cosmic conflict to see which one's going to win. That there's light and there's dark, there's yin and there's yang, there's good and there's evil, there's Satan and there's God, and they're having this battle to see which one is going to win. Okay, that's not true. Okay, Satan is not equal to God, but he was created by God. See, Satan is creator, created, rather, God is creator, and Satan was actually created by God. He was the head, the chief angel in heaven. Some people say that he was actually the choir director, the, the worship leader of heaven, that his job was to stand behind God's throne and that God's glory would radiate up and through him and it would spread all across heaven. That he was the most beautiful, he was the most, he was the most prominent, he was the most powerful of all of the angels. And because of this, he became puffed up and arrogant and proud and he led an insurrection, a rebellion against God, an attempt to dethrone and to overthrow God. And because of this, God defeated him and cast him like lightning from heaven down to earth along with one third of all of the other angels, now known as demons, to where they bring the war from heaven to earth against people just like you and me. But they are not equal to God. See, he was created. He is not equal because God is creator. So that means he doesn't possess the attributes of God. Okay, he's not not all knowing. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know your, your thoughts. He he doesn't know your, your mind. He doesn't know your future, but he is very clever. That he is crafty, he is cunning, he has been watching civilization since the very beginning, and so he doesn't know what you're thinking, but he does know how you think. And he can influence and infiltrate and manipulate you in your life because he knows how you think. But he is not all-knowing. In addition, he is not, not all-powerful. He is limited. That he is limited in his ability and his power because he is created. So for instance, okay, Satan cannot create, he can only imitate. Satan cannot give life, he can only take life. Satan can mimic, he can mock, but he cannot mirror the power of God because he is limited. He is not all powerful. He's also not all present. That he can't be everywhere all the time against everyone. He is confined to a single moment, to a single place in time. So while, yes, Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, you and I most likely were being tempted by his demons that he's somewhere else giving instruction, giving direction to one of the legions of his demons, which then attack us to to make us to be deceived, to be distracted, and to feel defeated. And so, but he can't be everywhere all the time. Only God can do that. That only God possesses these attributes. Only God is all-knowing. Only God is all-powerful. 
Only God, the Creator God, is all-present, omnipresent, everywhere for everyone, all the time, because God alone possesses these attributes. Satan is not equal to God. He is created by God because God is the most powerful. So they're not equal. The second thing is, they are not your only enemy. Okay? They're not your only enemy. First John talks about this, that you actually have three enemies and you're going to get hit from three different directions. You have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you need to be able to understand each one of these because they coalesce in attacks in our different lives. Now, the world and the flesh, that's primarily what a lot of us wrestle with. But behind that is the works of Satan. The, the first enemy you face is the world. Okay, this is the corporate systems, the ideologies, the philosophies at work in the world to undermine God's will and God's word for our lives. This is the world. So if you act like everyone acts, if you think like everyone thinks, if you behave and you believe just like everyone else does, that is the world. And this shows up in our vernacular and everyday common language. We say things like, you do you. All right, it's my life. As long as it feels good, I'm going to do it. It's consensual. It's no one else's business. That It, it does only affects me. It's not going to affect everyone else. This is the way that I want to live. I determine my own truth. This is my reality, my life. You do you. That's, that's the world system. That's the way in which the world thinks. Elsewhere, Mark calls this the wild animals because he's talking about the world. The second is the flesh. And when he talks about flesh, this is not the physical body that you live in, but rather it's the spiritual nature that inhabits you. That it's talking about your sin nature, that we are totally depraved. It's that seed of our first parents inside of us. This is our flesh and it rises up, but you need to know that it's your responsibility. See, you can't just say the devil made me do it when you are responsible for your own actions. Sometimes the greatest enemy you face is the person who looks you in the morning at the mirror. Sometimes that's your greatest enemy. And you can't say, oh, the devil made me do it when you keep shooting yourself in the foot, right? Because of your flesh. The third is Satan and demons. It's the devil. Okay, the world and the flesh, very active, very enticing. We see it every single day, all the time. But ultimately, you need to know that behind the works of those two enemies is the devil. See, Satan, he comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve. He tempted them. They sinned. They fell. They rebelled. They separated themselves from God. And through their sin, death enters into the world. That death and chaos has entered into the world. So that's the reason that when you turn on the television, you see everything that's happening in the world, right? That's the result of sin. Now, when you see the war and the injustice and the violence and the famine and the plagues and the poverty and the racism and the prejudice at work in our world, even in our own country, that is all the effects and the results of sin in the world. That God's great garden has now become a wilderness, that it's fractured, it's flawed, it's broken, and that you and I, we are broken that we are born separated from God, bent in towards sin and self and guilt and temptations to our lust and to our pride and to our selfish ambition. And this is the way in which we live. Apart from the regenerating work of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place, this is our life, that we are helpless, that we are hopeless, and Satan is happy. You have a real enemy. You actually have three, but you need to understand the third part is this they can be defeated. That they can be defeated. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, put on the full armor of 
God. Why do you need to put armor on? Because it's a fight, because it's a war, because there will be a conflict that you are going to be engaged in battle. So you need to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your, he says, stand. Not to retreat, not to isolate, not to cower, not to pull back, not to be afraid or to be fearful, but that you can stand your ground. You can hold your ground. You can take back your ground against the schemes of the evil one, that he has schemes, that he has a plan. God has a plan for your life. Satan has a plan for your life as well. That he has schemes, that he is wanting to work and to intact and to attack you in your life. So you need to know his schemes and they can be defeated. See, I like to think about it like MMA. we got a couple of MMA fans in the room, big ultimate fighter fans, right? And so when it comes to different mixed martial arts matchups, you need to study, you need to know, you need to understand your opponent. And each person fights in different forms and ways. So you have, you know, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and you have others who wrestle and you got all these different forms and each different combination of a fighter, you have to understand the points of attack. You have to understand their strengths. You have to understand their weaknesses and you need to be able to understand the way in which they work. That's the same way that spiritual warfare is, that you need to understand, know, prepare And if you know your enemy, you come ready, you come trained, that you want to fight. You don't have to fall on your back. You can get up. You can stand your ground. You can hold your ground, and you can fight back. That Satan and demons, they can be, they have been, they will be defeated. And Jesus proves it to us already in Mark chapter 1. We see it as Jesus comes in, and he enters into the synagogue. So we're back to the story now. Jesus comes in and he's teaching and he's preaching and he comes into the synagogue. And as Jesus enters, there's a man who is totally under the control of a demon. As Jesus walks in, there's a hush over the crowd. Everybody gets silent. This man, he begins to demonically manifest. The synagogue is now an octagon. And Jesus is about to go toe-to-toe with a demon. How do you think Jesus is going to handle this? How do you think Jesus is going to do this? What do you think Jesus is going to do to respond to this demon? I I love this. Here's what it says. And he, being the demon, cried out to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, that you have come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. That's how Jesus handles it. Whenever you watch horror movies or or television shows about exorcisms or demons and ghosts, what you notice is things always get very weird, right? Right? It it always gets strange. There's some religious incantation. There's some form of superstition. Somebody has an amulet or a cross or a gob. It's so strange. And, And the reason that they do that when the priest shows up, everything falls apart It's because they want to stretch out the story. They want to scare you. They want to make their money so that way they can get you in a place to where you're you're afraid. Okay, Jesus, he doesn't do any of that. Jesus comes in. He says, shut up, be gone, done. That's it. Simple, right? That's the way that, that Jesus handles it. So Jesus comes in and he begins to teach and at his presence, right, people are astonished. And then a demon, it begins to manifest. And he comes in, he teaches, and then he just casts out the demon by his own authority and the people there the people are amazed but i want you to notice they're not amazed about the demon okay because they believed in demons right and they're not amazed that the demon could be exercised because well they believed in that as well it's not what jesus did it's the way that he did it that was so shocking for the first century peoples because this was completely unheard of 
Now, they did have exorcism in first century Judaism. That the rabbi would come in, and it was very much like you saw on Poltergeist or Paranormal Activity or The Exorcist of Emily Rose. I mean, it was very similar to that. I mean, just things got way out of hand, and it didn't always go very well. I was reading about it as I was studying, and just some of the things they did were just, just bizarre. Right? One of them is they would take um, human feces, where they got it, I don't know, but they would take human feces, and they would smear it on the person's face and nose in hopes that they would expel the demon through the nostrils. Sometimes they would feed the person live, raw fish guts in hopes that they would actually vomit out the demon. And then on other occasions, they would drill a hole in the person's head, remove the skull, so that way the demon could leave from the top of their head. Then they would take the skull bone and they would give it as an amulet for the person to wear for the rest of their life in order to ward off further attacks from demons. Right? That's the way that they did it. Jesus, none of that. Right? Jesus just shows up. He says, shut up. You gone, done, now, finished. That's the way that Jesus handles it because Jesus comes in and he preaches with this authority. And the people are astonished at the way he teaches because there's no redemic tradition. There's no interpretation. There's no notes. There's no footnotes. Jesus just comes in and he says, this is the way that it is. And the people are shocked. But then he casts out a demon by his own authority. And the people are like, who is this guy? Who is this man? Nobody knows who Jesus is. This is what you'll find fascinating. If you go home and you read through the entire gospel of Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is. Nobody even knows. They don't understand. He comes and preaches. They're like, who is this guy? He casts out a a, a demon and they're like, what gives him the right? He performs a miracle. He heals people. He feeds 5,000. People are like, I don't know who this guy is. That over and over again, nobody has a clue. Do you know who the only characters in the story who know the identity and divinity of Jesus are? It's the demons. Repeatedly in Mark's gospel, 14 times, if my memory serves me correct, 14 times, Jesus has these conflict encounters with demons, and each time he does, they say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. We know who you are. You are the Holy One. You are the Messiah. You are the Chosen One. You are the Christ. Because demons have the best theology out of anyone else in the Scriptures. That just goes to show that you can have amazing theology. You can have Wayne Grudem and John Frame's systematics totally memorized. You can be a complete Bible nerd. You can raise your hand, pass the Bible test. You can go to seminary, get your master's degree. You can get your PhD and you can still be equal with the demons. That you can be raised your entire life in the church, baptized as a baby in the church. You can have your wedding in the church. You can have your funeral in the church. Pull the casket closed, close your eyes, open them up, and you can still be sitting in hell right next to a demon. Because theology does not save. Jesus saves. Am I saying that theology is bad? Absolutely not. I love theology. But theology apart from Jesus, yes. Because theology without Jesus is religion, and religion is demonic. And right now, some of you are probably wondering, well, how did this man get like this? What happened in his life that led him to get like this? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but one commentator that I read said that it was probably a religious spirit. 
that it was a demon of religion because it manifests itself within the congregation at the synagogue. Now, to be honest, we don't really know because the Bible, it doesn't give us that information, but there are elsewhere in other parts of the scriptures to where the Bible tells us about how we can open ourselves up, giving the enemy rights and access into our life to be able to dominate and probably maybe even to manipulate, control us in our life. I mean, this guy, it happens so much to where by the time Jesus shows up, he is totally indwelt, influenced under the control of this demon. Now, others of you, we like to think about demonic in terms of possession. Okay, but I want you to see that Mark uses this word here. He says unclean spirit. Okay, that means to have a demon. The Bible never makes the claim of possession. Okay, so today we think about the demonic in terms of possession, oppression, obsession, or, or things like that. But to be fair, the Bible never makes those claims. The, the word here is dahimanitsamai, which literally means to be demonized. There's not different levels or strata or spheres. The Bible just says this guy, he was demonized, that he was influenced, that he was internally indwelt, that he was under the control of this demon. So how does this happen? There's a book called Spiritual Warfare by a guy named Carl Payne. It's a great book. I would recommend it. And he borrows this illustration from Matthew chapter 12, borrows it straight from Jesus. And he says that you need to think about your life like a house. Okay. Your house, your life rather is a house. So you live in your house and through habitual unrepentant sin, things like bitterness, unforgiveness, disobedience, foolishness, unwilling to follow the Lord in your life, what you're doing is you're opening a door. That your life is a house and sin is the opening of a door. Okay, now in our lives, if we were to open the doors, if we were to raise all the windows, just keep everything unlocked, and then nightfall comes, thieves are running around in the neighborhood, guess whose house they're going to break into? The one with the closed door locked or the one with the open door? It's the open door. And many of us, we think about sin like it's the breaking of a law, which is absolutely true. It is. But you also need to see sin as the opening of a door, that you are actually opening a door through habitual, unrepentant sin, unforgiveness, bitterness, hurts and hardships directed to other people. You're actually opening a door in your life. The door's open. The windows are up. How many of you tonight you would go to sleep with your doors unlocked, off their hinges, windows wide open, and a sign outside that says, come beat me up and take all my stuff. Nobody's going to do that, but that's exactly what we do every single day. When we live in a way that is disobedient to the Lord, all of this is, is this opening of a door. Now, if you are not a Christian, you don't have anything to worry about, okay? Because, well, Satan already owns your house. That he's your master, he owns you, the deed is in his hand, you don't have anything to worry about because Satan, he owns your house. And you say, no, 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 no. All right, I'm a good person. I do good deeds. I live a good life. I paid my taxes. I walk my dog. I can tuck my shirt in and keep a job. I'm a good person. That's fine. You can be a good person in a house owned by Satan because that's exactly the way it is. You say, no, no, no. My head's not spinning. There's nothing levitating. There is no green pea soup. I mean, everything is fine. Exactly. Because what landlord does want to trash his own house when he's happy collecting the rent check every single month? Okay. Satan owns your house. Now, if you're a Christian, can Satan own your house? No. Because Jesus owns your house. That Jesus goes to the cross in your place, 
His blood, it purchases you, that you have become his possession, that he redeems you, he reconciles you into relationship with the Father. So if you are a Christian, Jesus owns your house, but you still live in it. And it's your responsibility to get up and to close those doors. Because if you just keep living your life every single day, opening more and more doors, yeah, Jesus owns the house, but you're allowing, letting, giving things access and rights to just come on in anytime, whenever they want, because you're living your life with this open door. Now, to be fair, the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not this guy was a Christian or if he was a non-Christian, but apparently through habitual unrepentant sin and disobedience to the word and to the will of God, that by the time Jesus shows up, he was completely demonized. I mean, this is serious business. So what I want to do is I want to show you some ways in which I see people regularly opening the doors, giving the demonic access into their life. So that way you can see it for what it is, and then you can start shutting those doors. So here's the, here's the first that I, I, I see, and it's sexual sin. Okay, this includes sex outside of marriage, fornications, hookups, shackups, this is friends with benefits, homosexuality, bisexuality, the usage of dating apps like Tinder, which really only serves for one thing, which is sexual sin. I mean, that, that's it. I mean, you should just read some of the stories that are coming out from young girls on Tinder about the guys they meet. They are totally demonized because, well, that's just sexual sin. This also includes sex, text messaging, pornography, rape, molestation, incest, and others. Okay, the Bible uses the word porneia. It basically just means anything you can think of, right? Anything you can think of out of biblical heterosexual marriage between one woman, one man in the covenant before God, anything outside of that, sexual sin. It's the word porneia. And God uses this word when writing because he knew you would invent something new. You're like, oh, I came up with this new thing. No, you didn't. That's an old thing. It's covered. Porneia, gotcha. It's in there. And someone say, well, Jesus never talked about it. Actually, he did. Okay, in Matthew chapter 5, Mark chapter 7, and Revelation chapter 2, Jesus uses the word, porneia, gotcha. It's in there. And the sexual sin, according to 2 Corinthians, is opening a door. This also includes Christians and non-Christian relationships. Okay, uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. This is why I get so heartbroken and concerned when, when, when young Christian girls start dating a, you know, a non-Christian guy and they think, oh, he's so cute and he's nice and he's a good person. I think I can change him. I'm like, you can't. It's Jesus' job. And rarely have I ever seen the non-Christian converts due to missionary dating. 99% of the time, eventually, it's the Christian who is led astray because that in their life is this open door. Another is false doctrines, false teachings. This could be um, heresies about Jesus, Christianity, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. This includes false doctrines, false teachers, pastors, preachers, authors, seminary professors who would want to teach people and lead them away from the God of the Scriptures. Bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says that just going to sleep while angry allows the devil a foothold in your life. And that unforgiveness is torture, not for you, but for the other person. That bitterness is poison in your life. It's an open door. Ephesians 5 talks about drunkenness, that, that's alcohol, that's drugs, that, that's, you know, because you're not sober, you're not alert, you're not in your right mind. All of that, that's an open door for the ordinary demonic in your life. The next, it continues on. Um, gossip is 1 Timothy 5. You think that's demonic? Yes, because it destroys people. And what Satan would want you to do is to talk about people instead of actually talking to God. So yeah, 
gossip is demonic greed, that you're obsessed, you're consumed with money, you need it, you have to have it, you want it, you would do anything just to get it. First Timothy says greed is the root or um, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then in Acts, Paul, Peter rather looks to Ananias and Sapphira and says, why has Satan so filled your hearts? It's because of their greed. Lying, John 8, 44, that, the, that Satan is a liar. He's been lying from the beginning, that he is the father of lies, that his native language is lie. And so when you spread lies, when you promulgate lies, when you tell lies, you're actually speaking a demonic love language. And, and this moves into idolatry. First John says that, that anything that we worship above God, that is idolatry. That idolatry is anyone or anything that we elevate to the place of God in our lives. Now, this doesn't have to be little tiny figurines that you bow down and you worship to like they do in other places around the world. This is anything in your life that you elevate above the Lord. I've seen good things become gods, which become bad things. I've seen parents who idolize their children. I've seen, I've seen people idolize sports and, and hobbies and interest and relationships. I have seen musicians idolize their skill and their craft or their instruments. I mean, this is anything that you put above the Lord in your life. All that is, is the opening of a door. And you wonder, really? Seriously? I do those things all the time. Exactly. And you wonder why the love of God grows cold. And you wonder why he seems distant and far and that you feel detached and isolated and alone. And you wonder why when you read your Bible, it doesn't make any sense. And when you pray, you don't hear his voice. And when you worship, you don't feel his presence and you're depressed and and you're beat up and you're exhausted and you're depleted and you're wore out. It's because you're constantly, continually, you're under attack and you're giving the enemy access and rights to do so. Now, Satan doesn't own your house, but the question is, why are you letting him sleep on your couch? If this continues long enough, it moves into what we see as the extraordinary demonic, right? If the temptation is strong enough and it persists long enough, it could lead to things like torment and torture. Acts chapter 5, Acts 16, this is constantly being harassed, hearing voices both internally and externally. This could be physical injury, Matthew 9, Acts 8. This man here today is being thrown in the ground in violent fits, We also see that there's an epileptic boy where a demon tries to throw him in the fire. I know people who cut themselves. I know people who are anorexic or bulimic and they're causing just grave physical injury and harm in their life. This could be false miracles, Acts chapter 8, 2 Thessalonians 2. These are false religions who have counterfeit moves of God. I've seen false healers. I've seen false prophecies. I've seen false teachers. I've heard people speak in false tongues that when they pray in tongues, it doesn't sound beautiful like the tongues of angels. It sounds like the tongues of demons and it's disgusting and it's gross. And I've been in worship services and places where false teachers through false miracles just take broken people who are desperate and they just break them even further. This could be accusation, Revelation 12, that Satan is the accuser, that he accuses us day in and day out, that you are, he is a liar and you hear his lies that you are worthless, you are pathetic, you are stupid, you are ugly, you are fat, no one loves you, no one cares about you, no one wants you, you should just leave, you should just kill yourself. And you hear this all the time. And you feel like you're completely going crazy because you can't see it. You feel like you're being gaslighted because you don't understand where this is coming from. You hear the word you, that's a demonic accusation. 
And because it's invisible, you don't know what to do, right? If it was a real person, you would know exactly what to do. You would call the cops or punch them in the face. But because it's invisible and demonic, you don't know how to respond and you just feel like you're going crazy. It's because it's an accusation. John 10 and 8 talks about um, Satan being a murderer, that his goal is death and suicide, that he was a murderer from the beginning, that he comes to lie, steal, kill, cheat, and to destroy. And if he can lead to death, murder, or suicide, it's a double win, triple win for him. And then false spirits and spirituality. See, not every spirit comes from the Lord. First John talks about that you need to also test the spirits because not everything that is spiritual is actually from the Lord. That there is the Holy Spirit and then there are unclean, unholy spirits. There are angels and then there are demons and not everything actually comes from the Lord. So you need to be able to test because there are false spirits. There are false spirituality. And what I see so often in the day today is that people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Both are demonic. That we don't want you to be religious and we definitely don't want you to be super spiritual. This is why I rail on spirituality, vague, general spirituality all the time because both are demonic. You don't need to be religious. You don't need to be spiritual. You need to be a Christian. And so what's popular today is that people pick and choose which aspects of different religions they want and they incorporate them together. So they'll say, well, I'll take a little bit of Jesus because I was raised in Sunday school and my grandmother was nice. And then I'll, you know, here's a Sufi philosopher. Here's some guy on YouTube I saw. Here's some occult and new age pagan practices. Here's Buddhism. Here's Hindu. Here's Islam. All religions basically teach the same thing. So I'm going to mix them all together. And I have this new religion. It's actually an old religion. It comes from the very beginning. It comes from the pit of hell. It's not a new religion. It's an old religion. And you would think, but I'm so culturally relevant. I'm being so enlightened. No, you're being darkened. That's exactly what it is. You are not enlightened. You are being darkened. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That no one comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, I am a way among many ways. Pick your choice. He didn't say, I am the truth among many truths. Whatever you think, whatever you feel, there's no such thing as truth. It's your own reality. You get to pick your truth, right? No, there's one truth. He is the truth. He is the way, and no one comes to the Father but by him. It's not a little bit of this. It's not a little bit of that. It's only because of Jesus. And ultimately, behind every other religion and philosophy and ideology in the world, there is a demon. They're all just demonic. And whenever I teach on this, people are like, seriously, really? Yeah. You mean to tell me you really believe this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, how come we don't see it today? How come it's in the Bible? How come we hear stories from missionaries, people around the world, but we don't see it happening here in America today? I would say you're blind. Because we definitely do see this. Did any of the things that I just mentioned sound familiar? Yeah, totally. And that's because what happens overseas, or maybe in the Bible, is more overt. But what the enemy does here is more covert. That he would rather hide. He would rather be silent. He would rather go unseen so he can work behind the scenes because that's a lot more nefarious. That he would want you to think, no, 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 Satan and demons, that's like what we see in Hollywood. 
He wouldn't want you to see that it's actually the things that bind you and hold you and keep you living the life without the victory Jesus promises. Because he would rather operate behind the scenes. Because he knows that if he exposes himself, well, then you're going to wake up and you might actually get some help. And so I see people continually giving themselves to these things. Allowing the enemy access to their proverbial house. I see it happen in our world. I see it happen with my friends and my family. I've even seen it happen in our church and in lots of different churches. Clinton Arnold, in his book, Three Crucial Questions on Spiritual Warfare, he says that a Christian will encounter Satan and demons no more than a gardener will encounter weeds. Okay, you're going you're gonna to come across them. Maybe you haven't yet, okay, but you will. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And I, I've seen this at our church in New York. We were a young church. We were you know, immature, and we thought, hey, everybody's nice and they love Jesus. Let's just let people pray for everybody and it'll be fun. And we did that for a while, and then a couple weeks go by, and we notice that there's this new woman here, and she's kind of praying for people. And we think, oh, this is interesting, until we started getting some reports from others. We're like, hey, that woman prayed for me. It was kind of weird. We're like, okay. So my pastor went up to her and said, "Um, hey, who are you, and what church did you come from? She's like, I didn't come from a church. I'm a witch. And I had a voice in my head tell me, this is where I need to come and cast spells over people. So for three weeks, she was just casting spells on people. That's why we have a prayer team. Our prayer team is trained. Don't just let anyone pray for you. If you don't know them, don't let them pray for you. Right? you have, we have our team. They have a prayer guide, prayer badge on. They're trained. They would love to pray for you. If you are part of redemption, you know that if you have a prophetic word or if you have an impression of the Spirit that you feel led to share with someone and you don't know them, you kind of share it with them and then invite them to go pray because, well, we want to create a safe place. Because not everything that is spiritual actually comes from the Lord. And we've seen this even in our own church. Now, I don't talk about these things regularly, okay? Right? Because I don't want to be known as the demon church. Like, that's a bad reputation. Right? Oh, have you heard about them? That's the church with all the demons. Right? No, that's not, where, that's not what we want to be. And I don't want you to run away and start telling everybody like, oh, I think you have a demon and here's some demon. Okay, don't do that. Right, but I just want you to be aware. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be afraid, but I do want you to be aware that we've encountered these things in our, in our church as well. I mean, um, we were having a community group one time and we are, are, we're praying and then all of a sudden one of the guys, he just kind of began to manifest. His eyes rolled in the back of his head. His skin um, went very, very cold. He just kind of blacked out, dragged him to the back. A couple of the guys laid hands on him. A few minutes later, came to, had no recollection of what had happened. Right, we've had people in our prayer um, section, as they come forward for prayer at the altars, their body goes limp, they begin to shake, right? their face gets all contorted. Now our prayer team's trained, they just kind of slip them back behind the curtains, take them into the back room, lay hands, we've seen them delivered. I mean, we have a person in our church who as a teenager, they were anorexic, and they would actually pray to a demon named Anna, which is short for anorexia, and when asked, why did you pray to a demon? Right? They said, well, because the demons will give me what I wanted. I want to be skinny. God doesn't want me to be skinny. And so I'm going to ask the demons because they're going to give me what I want. And when they came to church one day, they told me that um, someone saw them in church and was like, hey, can we pray for you? So the prayer team kind of called them aside because you could see death written all over their face. They pull them off to the side. They lay hands on them. They pray for them. The person blacks out, falls on the ground, begins convulsing, yelling, screaming, slithering like a snake, vomiting, dry heaving, and they cast out multiple demons from the person. And the person today, totally delivered. 
right? No depression, no eating disorders, right? They love Jesus. They're married. They serve in our church. They've been totally delivered from this. But yeah, we've seen this. I mean, we even have, you know, one woman who, you know, she comes from a background of drugs and the occult and in her home, she would have these, you know, symbols around her house of all these different religions and all these false gods. And she had crystals and she would pray to, you know, all these different deities. She would consult psychics and mediums. She comes to church and then she gets saved. And as soon as she gets saved, she goes home and then all this weird stuff starts happening in her house. Shadows on the wall, dogs barking all the time, seeing things move. And, and as she calls me, she's like, what's going on? I'm like, well, just like we see in Mark here, at the presence of Jesus, the shadows are exposed. And so you got to get all that stuff out of your house. So she's like, okay, the next Sunday she comes in, she's got this whole box of just demon stuff. And she's like, just take it from me, just take it from me. And she turns around and the whole back of her neck and her ears are fire red and hot. And she said, I could hear them screaming at me the whole way here, take the box. So I'm like, all right. So I take the box and I bring it home. And my wife, she's like, what's in the box? And I'm like, oh, it's just demon paraphernalia. She's like, what are you doing? Get this stuff out of our house, right? And that's the joys of being a pastor's wife. But we've seen it. We've had demonized meth addicts just show up and start banging on our door in the middle of worship. I mean, we had one guy who was like totally demonized. He said he was the reincarnation of Jesus, and he was sending messages and emails that he was going to come in and shoot up the church, bringing a, the apocalypse and the second coming of Jesus. I mean, we called the police. We had them stationed outside, right? The guy got arrested, yes, but we're ready. We're trained. We're prepared that we have security. We have a prayer team who studied and trained that we are ready. We are prepared because this is a very real aspect, that you and I, we will encounter these things. We have encountered these things. That you do have an enemy. That he is strong. He is powerful. He is real. And you have an enemy. But more importantly, Jesus. Jesus has authority. Because God has already defeated Satan. He defeated him the first time in heaven where he cast him from heaven to earth. Jesus says, I saw him fall like lightning. Jesus comes on the scene. He takes the battle to Satan's own battleground in the wilderness, overcomes him through temptations, repeatedly through Mark. Jesus gets in conflict that he has these, these excursions with Satan's and every single time he just absolutely crushes them. That Jesus goes to the cross in our place for our sins. And Jesus, he reveals the power of the kingdom of God through dying on a cross where he defeated and disarmed the enemies and rulers of this world. That he conquered Satan's sin, hell, death, and the grave. That Jesus resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns still to this day. And that one day Jesus will return as our great warrior your king and he will slay that dragon and he will chop the head off that serpent so he could no longer harm or hurt the children of God and he will cast him forever into the lake of fire for eternity where he will be destroyed and suffer and be tormented forever and Jesus alone will prove that he is worthy, that he is holy, that he deserves the glory, that Jesus is mighty and Jesus has has the authority. And if you're a Christian, I got good news for you. That Jesus' authority becomes your authority. 
that you have received the delegated authority of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority. How much authority? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. That you go with the authority of Jesus. That you walk with the authority of Jesus. That you live with the authority of Jesus. That if you belong to him, if you have given him your hope, your trust, your, that you placed your life in him, then he has given you not only grace and hope and mercy and redemption and salvation, but he has given you a new identity, a new community. But more so than that, he has given you this new authority that you no longer are held or bound by Satan or sin. You are no longer a victim of your temptations and your trials and your troubles, that you are to no longer just be held captive by the world or the flesh or the devil, but you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you are to walk in the authority in which Jesus has given you. That's what it means to follow him. So what I want to do as we close is I want to share with you five ways in which you can walk this out. Five ways in your life in which you can experience daily deliverance for your life. And I tell you these things not because I'm perfect, but because I learned them the hard way. That for the first five years or so, me following Jesus, it was very difficult and challenging. And I would always wonder, how come, how come life is the way that it is? Like I've given my life to Jesus. Okay, I, I've, been, I've been forgiven, but I wasn't walking in freedom. That I had been saved and redeemed, but I wasn't walking in deliverance. That I had the love of Jesus, but I didn't have his authority in my life. And, and I struggled for years with guilt and shame and condemnation. And I kept wondering, okay, well, if Jesus loves me, then why do these things keep happening? And I learned through this that we also need deliverance. Like this man who was delivered, we also need Jesus to deliver us in our lives. And so I'm going to share these with you because I'm tired of seeing my friends and my family and my church just being beat up, being dominated, being depressed, being overwhelmed and anxious. I'm tired of seeing you being worn out all day, every day, all the time. And so I want to give you some strength to be able to walk in the authority that Jesus gives you. So the first thing you need to know is this. Okay, you need to find the root. Normally in our lives, behind the sin or the temptation, behind everything we see is actually there's a root. That there's some reason, there's some cause that we act the way that we do, that we behave, that we lash out, that we sin in the way that we do is because there's normally a root there. It could be your past. It could be a trauma. It could be drama. It could be generational. It could be family but normally there's some sort of root happening. Sin, pride, guilt, um, ambition, right? any of those things, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to find that root. When you find that root, invite the Spirit in to chop it down. But you got to find that root. The second thing is you need to cancel any rights. Okay, through, through sin, what you're doing is you're opening that door and you're inviting, you're allowing, you're giving the enemy rights to your life. So you need to cancel the rights. We do that by repentance and confession. Repentance, right, to turn from your sins, to trust in Jesus, to cancel the rights, and to follow him. So repentance is the first step, and then confession is the second. So repentance breaks that pattern. You ever notice in your life that there seems to be a pattern? Three months, six months, everything's going fine. All of a sudden, boop, there it is. It just shows up over and over again in a pattern. 
That's because, well, there's rights there. You got to repent to break that pattern. Confession, now that's what brings the change. You actually need to confess your sins. One of the most difficult things that you will ever do in your life is to be honest with someone else. To be honest, not just about who you are, but also about what you do. And so you need to be honest when you, when you talk about your sin. And I'll tell you this, confess your sin. Okay, name it. And I have to teach this all the time because we have people who come into church and they're like, well, I made a mistake or I messed up. Uh-oh, right, that's not confession. I don't know what that is. That's not even Christian, Okay. You need to confess it, name it, sin, sin, lust, pornography, adultery, lying, cheating, name it. Because when you name it, it loses its power over you. You got to cancel those rights, repentance, confession. Number three, you need to close the doors. What doors have you opened in your life? Through unrepentant, habitual, continual sin, what doors do you have open? You can't just pray and say, God, please close the doors and then go back to bed. Okay, no, you need to get up and need to close those doors. And this takes work. It's going to take work. The Apostle Paul says you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're going to have to actually do something. I know that's really hard for a lot of you. But you're going to have to do something if you expect anything to actually change. You've got to get up and you've got to close those doors. And then number four, you need to take back the ground. What the enemy would want you to do is to be defeated, to be isolated, to retreat, and to feel as if you are cheated, and to settle for less than what God has promised you. You need to take back that ground. You need to stand your ground. You need to fight. You need to move. You need to persevere. You got to take back what the enemy stole, and you got to declare what God has given you. Take back that ground. And then number five, you need to walk in authority that you have received the delegated authority of Jesus Christ for your life, that you are not a victim, you are not defeated, you are not a slave, you have received the delegated authority of Jesus Christ for your life. You need to walk in, operate in, exercise in the authority that Jesus has given you. Where do we find Jesus' authority? Well, Mark 1 tells us, first we see it in his preaching, that this word is authority. This is the final rule. This is the authority in the life of the believer, that we need to get this word in our hearts, in our heads. It needs to be our hope, because if Satan is a liar and this word is truth, which one are you going to believe? If you don't know this word, all you're going to know is his words. You need to get the word because this word is authority. That we had it in the word, that we have in his preaching. Also, it's in his presence. That at the presence of Jesus, demons, they tremble. When Jesus is present, everything is exposed. And the demons, they tremble. You need to practice the presence of God for your life. Reading, praying, listening to worship music, being in Christian community, continually practicing the presence of God in your life. And then lastly, it's about the power. That he has power. Jesus' power comes from the Holy Spirit. That he preaches by the power of the Holy Spirit. He teaches by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he loves and serves and he performs miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that empowered Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that empowers you. The Spirit that rose him from the grave. Some of you, you need to understand this. That the Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, that the authority of Jesus has been delegated to you to walk in, operate in, exercise the authority of Jesus, because the bottom line is you have a real enemy, but Jesus has given you authority. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son who gives us authority in Jesus, who gives us power in Jesus, that we don't fight with our own power. We fight with the power that we have received from Jesus. Father, if there are any sins in our life, we pray that we would close those doors, that you would give us the strength to get up and to close those doors, to not fear like failures, to feel like victims, to feel like slaves, to feel dominated or manipulated. But God, we would be the authority that you have called us to be, and we will be the warriors that God has called us to be, and we will fight with the strength that comes from Jesus Christ alone, and we'll pick up our arms, and we will put on our armor, and we will stand our ground, and we will not let the enemy attack and defeat us any longer. Because of you, we have authority in the name of Jesus. Now stand up and get ready and walk in the authority that Jesus has given you. Don't be passive in this life. Don't be a passenger in this life. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Be courageous. Be strong. Be bold. Be who God has called you to be. He has given you authority. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.